The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Amos, Amos chapter 6 is where we are this morning. We are more than halfway through now as we continue working our way through Amos. And this week, actually, as we finish up Amos 6, we're, we're finishing one, one section, one segment of Amos uh, the woe oracles, and next week in chapter seven, we start into the visions. So you guys can get excited as I am about that. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story, but I must tell you that it's not my story. This is the story that Jesus told. He told the story about a rich man clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Isn't that a great word? Feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And Father, even this morning, as we come to your word, we do pray that you would help us to hear from Moses and the prophets, especially from the prophet Amos, as we study the words that he proclaimed to the people of Israel. May we see how they apply to us today. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us a right perspective and vision on comfort, on torment, on difficulty. God, that we would be a people that are humble before you, knowing there are great things laid up in store for those who bow their knee before Jesus. Lord, work through your word by the power of your spirit to align our hearts and our minds and our lives more and more with yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Amos chapter 6, we see the people of Israel living in comfort. We see them living in ease. We see the people of Israel uncaring for the people around them that were suffering. The reason I turned us to Luke 16 to start with and seeing the rich man and Lazarus, there are a lot of similarities that are between those two passages. You see, the people of Israel, they thought they were in right standing with God. They went through the motions of worship, They had big houses. They had all of the things of comfort. Even as we see in this passage, they lie on beds of ivory. Fancy. They stretch themselves out on their couches, resting in a time of ease. They eat lambs from the flock, the best meats, and calves from the midst of the stall. No, these aren't grass-fed They've been kept in a stall and grain-fed, finished, wonderful, marbled meat. This is the very best that they were getting. They were in such leisure, they could sing idle songs, even inventing musical instruments for themselves. Wine? Not by the glassful. They drank it by the bowlful. And they anointed themselves with the finest oils, the fanciest lotions and ointments, whatever they wanted, they had. And they took all of this as a sign that they were in a position of favor with God. I mean, how could we be living so so high on the hog if God was displeased with us? but they didn't understand. They didn't have this right perspective. They abused, they neglected those that were under them, maybe in society, those that had less than them, they they took advantage of for their own gain. God was not happy with them. Even though they went through the rituals of worship, God was not pleased. They didn't have a right perspective. They thought that comfort now would mean comfort forever. They have a pride, a haughtiness. They have a great complacency and idleness. When instead they should have been lowly, they should have been humble, they should have been looking for ways to use what they had to serve others. 
And so what we see here is that God will correct them. God loves them too much to leave them in their place of comfort and ease and sin. That he would humble them, that he would chasten them, that he would correct them that they might learn to be comforted, not in the comforts of this life, but comforted instead in the grace of God. We're going to look at Amos chapter six, really in two parts. We're going to divide it in half. The first seven verses, verses one through seven of Amos chapter six, really puts on display just how haughty how high-minded and how complacent the people of Israel were. And then in verses 8 through 14, we're going to see how God would chastise, how he would humble and correct them. And so we begin in verse 1 and we see these words of woe by Amos. And just like Seth was laughing from his reading in Isaiah I read Amos 6.1 and I, I think this seems so paradoxical. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Now this, oh, woe, these are like an exclamatory utterance. So have you ever, maybe my kids took such great delight for so long, they would try to scare me. And the day that it finally happened, you know, they, they're behind a door. You're unsuspecting. You walk into a room and they jump out in the dark and they, they surprise you. And whatever comes out of your mouth, it's not even words. It's just a, a, a noise. Oh, my kids got such a kick out of that. The day they finally accomplished scaring dad. That's what woe is. It's this exclamatory utterance, not even necessarily a word. But what is it said for? Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Now, I don't know about you, but if I come around a corner and I see someone sitting or lounging on a couch, my response is not typically, whoa, surprise, shock. But that's what Amos is saying. It is shocking to see the people of Israel in this way. And he's speaking words of woe to them that they are in such a state of complacency. We tend to think that ease is a sign of success, right? When you can finally retire you succeeded. Isn't that the American dream is you work and work and work and lay up as much as you can so that someday you can retire and just spend it all on yourself. Ease is not a sign of success. Ease is not a sign of favor. Ease is not a sign of having finally arrived. A feeling of security? Well, isn't that to be worked for? Isn't that something that we should tirelessly seek after? A feeling of security? A feeling of security is a great thing. Comfort is a wonderful thing. 
They are precious gifts from a powerful God. But they have to be rightly understood. You see, a right comfort and a right security are often confused with a sin one ease, with false comfort, with complacency. And that's the place that the people of Israel were in. Their ease, their stature, their standing. Oh, it wasn't by righteous means. It was by oppressing others. It was by taking advantage of them. The security that they thought they had was only in earthly things. There was no assurance for them as we in the church would talk about that we can have assurance, that we can have security, that we have the seal of the Holy Spirit in our lives that Jesus has given to us. A right comfort and a right security. We talk some about the, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the, the Catechism. How many are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism? Question one in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's a great question. That's a probing question. What is your comfort in life and death? It goes on to answer this question that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, it doesn't stop there. It continues. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I can't think of anything further away from what the people of Israel were experiencing then this question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. Comfort in life and in death? Oh no, we're just concerned about making sure that our bowls are filled with wine and that our schedules are cleared so we can lounge on our couches and sleep on our ivory beds. And in between, we're going to fit into our busy schedules getting massaged with all of the finest oils and lotions. What is your only comfort in life and death? Israel was so far removed from this, so far away from this, that that for Amos, as he sees this, it's woe, it's shock. This isn't right. They have a feeling of security 
the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. These were people who were in authority, who had places of prominence that others would come to, to seek counsel. And Amos says, despite all of that, despite your position, your rank, your your prominence, how much you have laid up for yourself here on earth, woe to you. In verse two, he says, pass over to Calne and see there, go to Hamath the great, go down to Gath of the Philistines. These were all cities that were great. Do you remember Goliath, the champion of Israel, whom David came up against with a sling and a stone? Goliath, this giant of a man who so intimidated the armies of Israel, such a large man, a warrior from his youth. He was from Gath of the Philistines. Those are the kinds of cities we're talking about where the men were big and and strong. And Amos says, take a look at all of these cities, pass over and see them. They've all been destroyed. At the time that Amos speaks, all of those cities had been wiped out. As strong as they were, as large and formidable as those cities were, they had all been wiped out. He asks, are are you better than these kingdoms? No, is the answer. Is their territory greater than your territory? No. You also, Israel, Amos is saying, you are in a dangerous, dangerous place. Again, verse four, words of woe. Those lying on beds of ivory, laying out on couches, eating all of the best food, singing idle songs, inventing instruments, drinking wine by the bowl fill, anointing themselves with the finest of oils. But at the end of verse six, he shows us what the problem is. You are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You go on living in the lap of luxury. You have all of these things to make you so comfortable. But you don't grieve over the ruin of your people. Joseph is used there to speak of of the people of Israel. You're not grieving over this. That where you think you're flourishing, you're really just dying. All throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, we come across these passages that, that should really challenge how we look at comfort, how we look at ease, And if we're doing so with just an earthly mindedness or if we're having more of a godly perspective, an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, he compares the days of Noah to when the son of man will come. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Isaiah chapter 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. James chapter five, come now you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Church, our comfort and our security must come from our belonging to our Lord who bought us, bought us with his blood and sealed us with his Holy Spirit, not in homes and savings accounts, having the most obedient children, having good health. Now, all of those things are good things. Those aren't bad things, but they can't be our security. They can't be our eternal hope. They cannot bear the weight of being our comfort. They'll let us down. And to put such a burden on them is really to make those things idols. I'm going to serve this. I think this can sustain me. I think this can help me through a tough season instead of turning to the Lord who is the only one who can do that. If we look to these other things, we turn our attention away from the Lord. We turn our worship away from the Lord, our hope away from the Lord. And that's what Israel was so guilty of. They were looking to all of the comforts in this life and forgetting about that which was still to come. They were not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. They were not grieved over sin. This is the major problem. That they stood by idly, that they watched as as their nation slid further and further into corruption, that they sat on their hands while morality degraded and wickedness was on the rise. This was the people of Israel, not grieving over sin. We even talked at our community group on, on Wednesday about what things we hate, 
We have to be careful with hate, but we should hate sin. When was the last time that we were grieved by our own sin? I hope not long ago. As Christians, this is our duty to be repenting. This is what we're called to, to recognize sin in our lives, and it should be part of our daily life. That the Holy Spirit convicts us, that we repent and turn away, and we confess this to our Lord Jesus. We're reminded that his blood washes us free from our sin. His spirit empowers us that we don't need to continue walking in that way. No longer slaves of unrighteousness, but we yield our members as slaves to righteousness. Lord, use my hands for your purposes. Use my mind and my mouth. Use my feet to take me places that I can do your will. And manifest your glory. The people of Israel had forgotten that there was warfare all around them. That we are engaged in in spiritual warfare, church. I've been reminded in a number of different ways this week. The things we come up against in this life. There is a spiritual battle that is taking place. We can be sleeping on beds of ivory or we can be on our knees in the trenches of prayer. But the reality is the same, that there is a war that is raging and we are to be engaged in it. But if we are so wrapped up with ease and with comfort, if we are caught in complacency, we won't be very effective soldiers. We're going to get taken out, taken down, annihilated, destroyed. But to be on our knees in prayer, to be engaging in spiritual warfare, this is the time that that we live, church. This is what we are called to. But Israel... They had shirked off this responsibility. They had left this behind. And so verse seven, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. The revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. As elders, as we met and we we worked through this passage and discussed it, Nathan was careful to point out to us that exile Exile, verse 7, the first of those who go into exile. That's actually a gracious thing that God does. It wasn't destruction of the people of Israel. Exile would allow a remnant to remain. Eventually inhabit the land once again. God would fulfill his promises, but this is correction. This is discipline. It's the chastening of a gracious and a loving Lord. And that leads us then right into the second half of the chapter where we see the people of Israel who are so haughty and so complacent being humbled and chastened. Look with me in verse eight. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. 
God's making a promise. God's making a solemn promise. This is so guaranteed that he says, I swear by myself. When God says, I swear by myself, you better believe that what he says is going to be accomplished. He spoke these words to Abraham when Abraham went to take Isaac as an offering. And he speaks these words, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. And he promises, makes great promises to Abraham that he would accomplish. The author of Hebrews picks up on this and says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. You want to guarantee that God is going to do what he says he will do? Well, if he swears by himself, there's no one greater, no one higher than him. God's word is sure. So he says this, but not in words of great blessing for the people of Israel. No, because they lived in disobedience to him. He says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. There were times of great difficulty coming for the people of Israel. And God is saying, I don't want you to think that it's just chance or circumstance or coincidence. I want you to know I've sworn by myself that I would do this. And so when they come and take you off into exile, you will know that this is my hand to humble you, to chasten you. This is my severe kindness that I will do this to you, deliver up the city and all that is in it. In verses nine and 10, we get a picture even of what this might look like. If 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. Rather than being out in the streets, maybe trying to defend their city, these 10 men say, let's go hide. Let's find a vacant house. Maybe they'll miss us. They won't see us. And so they go into the house to hide away. God says they won't escape. They will die. And then a relative comes, verse 10, to take the bones away, anointing him for burial. And shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? Anybody else in the house that that we've missed? And the response is no. And this man calling out shall say, silence, shh. Don't mention the name of the Lord. Why? Because they recognized it was the Lord's hand upon them in in judgment, in, in chastening. And so they even don't want to mention God's name. They think maybe if we don't even mention his name, we can fly under his radar. Maybe we'll go unnoticed. These 10 men who went hiding away in this house, well, they didn't go unnoticed by the Lord, but maybe, maybe we will. If we don't mention his name, maybe he won't notice us. We don't want to call any attention to ourselves. 
But we see in verse 11, behold, the Lord commands the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. God is thorough in what he does. He is not going to miss anything. The question then is asked, verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Those of you with with horses, have you ever gone out riding on the, the lava flow up in Parkdale? Does that seem like a great place? Let's go have horse races out on the lava flow. No, that's a terrible idea. That makes no sense at all. Well, since there won't be horses trotting across that land, let's try to plant a garden. We'll get a tractor. We'll put a plow on the back of it. We'll go through there. We'll turn it up and and we'll plant it. And you say, that's ridiculous. It makes no sense. That's absurd. That's exactly the point. Horses don't run on rocks. You don't take them out on lava fields. You don't plow there with oxen and hope that you're going to be able to grow anything. And just as absurd as that is, is turning justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Such an absurd thing to twist this around, to turn this over. Justice? Justice is turned into poison. This makes no sense. They've perverted justice. They've perverted righteousness. What should have been life-giving justice was poison. It was taking life. It was killing the exercise of justice. And, And church, I want you to understand that this is ours. This, this is something that we should know. This is something that uh, of all of the people in the world, that the church should know justice because we know a God who is just, perfectly just. We have the greatest example of God and his justice We of all people should know justice. We of all people should practice justice and righteousness, having this standard, knowing what is right, what is, what is wrong should be like life giving water to those that we come into contact with. And so too for Israel, but Amos says, no, you've turned it to poison and the fruit of of righteousness It should be sweet, but you've turned it into something bitter. You've turned it instead into wormwood. It's not nourishing. And understand, as I've wrestled through this this week, this has been tough. It's not only by their action. It's not that the people of Israel were only doing wrong things. Certainly there was that present, but it's also their inaction. It's also that instead of doing good, instead of taking action, they were laying on beds of ivory. They were lounging out on their couches. 
It's not just positive deeds of action that were unjust, but it's the negation of doing what was right. It was their inaction. They were equipped. They were able to be a real help, but they were unwilling. They were unwilling. Sitting on couches of complacency while people around them were suffering and they were doing nothing about it. A little conviction for me this week. Thursday night, take my phone in hand and I'm going to check how my twins did against the Tigers of Detroit in their game Thursday night. And instead of seeing a game recap, instead of seeing scores, I see headlines that the game wasn't played on Thursday. So I read this story about a team meeting that took place a few hours before the game and how they decided that they weren't going to play on Thursday. And in the the Tigers clubhouse, the same meeting was being had and they also decided that they weren't going to play. And many sports teams across our nation, even across different sports, believe playoff games in the NBA were canceled. Many of these on, on Thursday as a demonstration against injustice. And I read further and saw that even 100 Major League Baseball players were going to commit their salaries on Thursday and Friday to black communities and, and to fight against injustice. Do you know how much a Major League Baseball player makes? The average is $4.4 million in a year. The best paid major league baseball player in one year makes about $40 million. And I thought, well, you can do that. You can give away your salary for a couple of days and you can still be on beds of ivory. You can still be lounging on couches of luxury. And I got critical, thinking, well, that's nothing. Not playing a game? But then I was soon convicted. What have I done? It's, it's easy to be critical and, and look and say, well, is that really going to do much good? But to ask myself, what good have I done? Church, we're not called to less. We're not called to less than the world would do. We are called to more. And recognizing again that this is a spiritual battle that is taking place as well, we are called to battle in prayer and to fight in prayer. And we are called to action. And I'm not trying to just stir us up around these hot topics right now. No, I'm talking about when you're checking out at the grocery store and you're interacting with the cashier. 
When you're at the gas station and someone is filling your car with fuel and the interactions that you have there, I'm talking about when you're fixing breakfast for your children, when you're teaching in school, when you're sitting in a classroom. I'm talking about all of these things, all of these interactions that we'll have in our community, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. What are we doing to uphold justice and righteousness? Are we those that are able to live in such a way that we bring refreshment and sweetness and life to those around us? Because that's what justice and righteousness should do. But to turn it around, to twist it, no, that ends up meaning poison and wormwood. And as we look into the world, as I look into the world, as I read headlines, as I see things taking place, I think so much of this is turning justice into poison. Instead of upholding what is right and good and acting in such a way, no, it's bringing about death and destruction but it's the people of God in relationship with God, informed by the word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God that can go into the world and make a difference, that can uphold justice and righteousness and live it out and speak in such a way that it brings life to those around us. The people of Israel, they were equipped. They had the ability, but they were unwilling. They were unwilling. Instead, they just rejoiced in their own power. Verse 13, look at this. You have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low debar. Lo debar translated means nothing. You rejoice in lo debar, a great victory. It's nothing. Who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? As Amos speaks these words, I hope that you hear the bite of sarcasm. You rejoice in a victory. That's nothing. Have we not by our own strength captured Carnam? Carnam for ourselves, horn, strength. By your own strength, you've captured strength for yourselves. Big whoop, big deal. It's all nothing. You've done no good, is what Amos is saying. And behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. This is what Israel could expect. See, God is so zealous for justice to be done. He is so zealous for righteousness to be upheld that he isn't complacent or idle that he will chastise, that he will discipline his people, that he will bring about correction where they have erred. And this is God's goodness. 
This is God's kindness to his people so that they will once again practice and uphold justice and righteousness. The author of Hebrews writes about the correction and the discipline of the Lord. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline, yes, truly does seem painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The author of Hebrews even goes so far to say, therefore, lift your drooping hands. You go through discipline, chastening correction. Oh, it's hard. Your hands hang down low. This is a difficult time. But having this right perspective, even lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Get engaged then in doing what is right and what is good, the peaceful fruit of righteousness a peaceful fruit of righteousness, not a fruit of righteousness that is wormwood, that is bitter. As we conclude this morning, I want you to think about and consider those that you've had interactions with this week. Those that you've talked to, wherever you've gone, grocery store, gas station, maybe you went to the doctor this week, spoke with a neighbor, called up a friend, had some interactions with a coworker. My question is, what good did you do with the opportunity that you were given? Were you content? just letting this conversation go whichever way it would be steered by the other party? Did you aim to do some good? Did you pray in the midst of that interaction, knowing all that we engage in, there is a spiritual element to it. There's a spiritual battle taking place. I'm praying even as I'm talking to this person, Lord, give me the words. Lord, be glorified in the midst of this conversation. And did you pray for that individual following that interaction and continue to pray for them? We started this morning with 
the rich man and Lazarus. And I think a lot of us in many ways could probably identify with the rich man. We have a lot. But let us not be in a place of ease and comfort to be lulled into sleep and slumber and complacency. But no, let us use what God has graciously given us that we could do good to others, that we could serve, that justice and righteousness would go out from our lives, that it would be spoken from our lips, that it would be deeds done by our hands that would bring glory to him. Would you pray with me again? Father, we give you thanks for your word. And the book of Amos is a real challenge. Nine chapters and so filled with with judgment and with correction. But Lord, I am thankful that even in this, we see your grace. That when we go through times of correction and, and, and discipline, we're reminded that you're treating us as your children. How great that is. It's a family that we don't naturally belong to, but by your spirit, you have given us new life. You have adopted us into your family and made us your own and given us an inheritance that is beyond anything that we could attain to in this life. Father, keep us from becoming like the people of Israel who sought comfort only in this life. May we find our comfort in belonging to Jesus Christ who purchased us with his blood and sealed us with his spirit. May we not work to lay up just earthly treasure and have all of our stock here on this side of eternity. Lord, with what you have given us graciously, may we in turn lay up treasures in heaven. These things will be tested by fire someday. And I pray that what we do and what we say and how we think and all of these works and efforts that we put in would be found to withstand that fire to be refined, that it would be gold and silver and precious stones to the glory of our God and Father. And so work in us and through us, empower us by your spirit to live such lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.